Hello and welcome to On the Steps of 36, a podcast by Area A at the Architectural Association. Today, we're joined by Debbie Minuru, a writer and curator who has worked on exhibitions at a range of cultural institutions, including the Hayward Gallery, the Migration Museum, and Somerset House. In addition to her own independent curatorial projects, she's currently the assistant curator for research and interpretation at the Tate. So welcome, Debbie. Thank um, you. It's really exciting to be here and get to have this conversation with you. So to get us started with the first question, please, can you tell us your full name and date of birth or star sign, whichever okay. you prefer? Um, so my full name is Deborah Nkechi Maniru, and I'll go with my star sign. I'm a Virgo and I think I am a classic Virgo. I'm very perfectionist, very, I think I have oldest child vibes, even though I'm a middle child. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes it just like, it hits the the child it hits, I guess, yeah, <laughs> in terms exactly. of responsibility. So Virgo must mean you had a birthday very recently. I did, yes. I just turned 30. Oh, wow. Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy belated birthday. Thank you. And did you ever have a nickname or do you still? Well, obviously Debbie is technically a nickname. Um, I think I just had a variety of kind of riffs off Debbie. It's like Deb's, Deb's own. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, nothing particularly unusual. Great. And it's kind of interesting, actually, that we've started by asking you to state your full name because you did an amazing talk here at the AA about like kind of the origins of your name and conversations with your father and your parents, I guess, about where your name comes from. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so my middle name, Nkechi, and my last name, Maniru, are both Igbo names. Um, and I had some really interesting conversations with my dad about the origin of the name and what it means. And um he kind of has this way of telling these long stories to explain what the name might mean. And he doesn't like to give these kind of very precise answers. And that led to this um, talk that I gave at the Architectural Association and also an article I wrote called Fried Yam in the Museum. Um, yeah. Which I definitely recommend that everyone should listen to. So um, I guess, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Bedford, which is a town about an hour north of London. Um, I think I actually, actually have no idea how big <laughs> the town is, um, but it definitely felt growing up that there wasn't a whole lot to do. Um, people used to call it Deadford, um, <laughs> I think, especially for teenagers. Um, but it's it's actually quite a nice town, I have to say, if anyone's listening from Bedford, I do like it. <laughs> yeah, actually, my, my father lives in Radlett, very close by to there. So okay. um, I've spent a lot of time there and I actually lived there when I was studying at the AA, so, oh, no way. Um, yeah, so I've, I've always been on the train to Bedford, but I don't think I've ever actually been to Bedford. So, <laughs> Well, the, the Thames link goes right into Bedford, so yeah. I feel like, yeah. Um, and what type of house did you grow up in? Um, so I grew up in a semi-detached, kind of normal-ish house um, with four bedrooms. And it was a, I think, an Edwardian house. Um and I was always, I feel like it's the one place I know everything about, like every single nook and cranny. I could tell you what was there, what what's changed, what used to be there. And I used to have all these dreams that there was more to discover, but there never was kind of like some kind of alcove off the stairs or <laughs> something in the attic. Um, but yeah, no, I think I know absolutely everything um, about that house. That's so interesting. I often think that about the AA because I've spent so much time here. But then in the last year, I've discovered all these other spaces. So you never know. I feel like somewhere like the AA, there's probably more to discover than, <laughs> than like a, um, 
uh, a semi-detached house, but but it is never a series know. of houses that are just That's all true. interconnected. Yeah. So. <laughs> and you mentioned before that you're a middle child. So how many of you lived together? In the um, house? So there were five of us. So I have two brothers um, and then my parents. Oh, good. And did you have a favorite toy as a child? I did. Um, so I had a teddy, which was a rabbit. I think it's still called a teddy if it's a if it's a rabbit called Rabby. Very imaginative. <laughs> and I think it was the first toy that I was ever given and I was very very attached to this rabbit um, until I lost her when I was about 12 and even though I was too old to be that upset it was it was really devastating to be honest (laughs) Um, she was kind of all faded and I think yeah sorry I'm not emotional now but you know it it still still hits home that loss yeah (laughs) it's that kind of a big experience of like loss I guess at a young age and I guess you don't even as an adult, you have these strange attachments to things that you that were precious to you as a child. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, it was just, you know, you, you when you've had something for so long, you kind of, you put all these memories into it. And I think then that's sad when it feels like the thing that contains those memories is gone. But, um, but obviously the memories still live on, so it's all fine. <laughs> <laughs> and were there any foods you refused to eat when you were young? Um, not particularly. I don't think I was a very fussy child, but, um, I think I almost wanted to not like more things. So I thought it would give me like more personality or something. (laughs) So I remember deciding not to like gravy or custard. I don't know why. I just thought they were kind of similar. One for main course, one for pudding. And both kind of gloopy in texture. Yeah, exactly. So I I think I didn't like them in inverted commas for about a year. And then I was like, why am I depriving myself of these delicious things? (laughs) And um, what would you say was your most memorable holiday before leaving home? Um, I had to think about this one a lot, actually, because we had loads of really nice holidays um, with my family. Um, But I think maybe the most memorable one was a trip to the Lake District because we went for about a week um, and I'd never been before. And I didn't realize that England had those kind of landscapes. And so it was really amazing to um to see the mountains and the lakes and before that we'd done a lot of walking kind of like short walks as a family and I always hated it and that was the kind of shift where I suddenly discovered that I loved walking and since then I've been on loads of walking holidays with my family and with friends and it's something that's really important to me now that's so interesting because I I think I've I feel like I remember a moment like growing up where I went from just complaining constantly when we were made to walk everywhere to then suddenly really enjoying it. Yeah, and I think it was partly because there was something to see. So all the walks around Bedford, Bedford's very flat, so you kind of just see a field, and I thought it was really boring <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, but having that kind of challenge and then thinking, oh, my God, we made it all the way to the top, and it was kind of scary at some points for me, um, that made it way more exciting. That's cool. And um, how would you describe what you do? Um, so I'd say that I'm a writer and curator. Um, I'm really interested in um, expanding my writing practice at the moment and thinking about different ways of writing because um, I feel like for a long time I was quite scared to put myself into my writing and I wanted to kind of say if I was writing about art, which is the main thing I write about, um, I only wanted to kind of reiterate what was already said about the artists or what they'd said about their work and was worried about getting things wrong. And I think more recently, I've really enjoyed 
writing in a way that leans more into kind of emotion and anecdote and isn't so bothered about facts or ver- things that are verifiable that just come from me um, and from other disciplines as well outside of art. Um, so that kind of writing has been really, in- it's really enjoyable to write. I really enjoy it. So um, that's good. And then in terms of curating, so I work at Tate. I've just started back at Tate. I worked there previously as well. Um, and I'm in the research and interpretation team. So I help write and edit texts that go on the wall in exhibitions. Um, and I also work on some independent curatorial projects as well. And did you always know that you were going to end up doing this? Or like, how did you arrive at this mm. career? So I think weirdly I did, I can't say always, but for a very long time I wanted to work in an art gallery. Um, but I think the writing thing is more new because I think I didn't really give my permission to myself to be the one who was creating something before. Um, so that's definitely kind of a new step. But yeah, I, I always I always really liked art and um, after I decided, I had this diary that I found recently and in it, it says, you know, it has some questions at the beginning. It's a Jacqueline Wilson diary. And it says like, what was your dream job? And I'm like, artist. And then weirdly it says like, if you couldn't do that, like what else would you want to do? And I put illustrator, which I think is really weird and funny. Um, but then at some point I clearly decided I wasn't good enough to be an artist. And so therefore I wanted to work with art. But it's kind of interesting that you said illustrator, because I think a lot of the writing that you do really like makes these amazing evocative pictures um, of like um, emotional ways to connect with art. Mm. And I think that's really I think that's really wonderful. So in exhibitions, as you're walking through that, the text really complements the work or gives you a different way to see it. Yeah, exactly. I think maybe we can think of I mean, it depends on the kind of illustration, I suppose. But sometimes illustration, if you think about illustration in books, which is probably what I was thinking about at that time, um, is a response to words. And I'm using words to respond to art, as you yeah. said. So, yeah, it, it's so quite kind connected. of inversion. Yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> I also love that it was a Jacqueline Wilson diary. Yes, great massive fan of Jacqueline Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> as am I. Uh. <laughs> um, and so what would you say are the kind of tools you work with in your, I guess, day-to-day life? I mean... Um, I guess my laptop is very important. Um, I do like to write things with pen and paper as well. I find like looking at a screen all day, it can be really hard, especially if you're struggling with something. I always like to print it out or to just sit down in bed and just try and um, try and write it out with pen and paper. Yeah, I think that's a good, I, I sometimes find the screen quite like, it's, it's almost like a block um, when I'm trying to write something and it's easier to, I guess, edit something, especially like print it out. Yeah. But. And you can like include little doodles and things if you're not, if you're just wanting to think, but also make a mark at the same time. Yeah, definitely. And I guess, um, what's the space in which you work look like? You mentioned like sometimes you like to work from bed or you like to um, print things out, but do you tend to work in, a, uh, do you have a studio space or do you tend to work in your home? Um, no, I don't have a studio space. I I'm trying to work out how to work at home. Um, I find it really produ- um, difficult to be productive at home. So um, that's something that I'm working on. But like with my um, like day job, I always like to go into the office because I'm just way more productive there. So yeah, it's I'm going to work out a way that I don't have to commute in every day and I can just sit at home and get some stuff done and have the comforts of my kitchen very nearby. Yeah. <laughs> it is a balance. You'd think that we'd be used to it by now, working from home. But um, some people are good at it. I've just never, I've never been good at that. I'm very easily distracted at home as well. So I feel your pain. <laughs> and um, 
Is there an app that you can't live without? So I like to think that I, I could live without any app and I could just live without my phone. But realistically, I think I couldn't live without WhatsApp. That's like my way of communicating with pretty much everyone. Um, so, yeah, and I do like keeping in touch with everyone. Like I constantly have I constantly have a lot of unread messages and that's not because I <laughs> don't like keeping in touch with people. It's just I want to put the time and energy into my responses, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what's up, I think? I think that's a good one. Yeah. Um, also, it kind of revolutionized like our ability to keep in touch with people around the world because of like being able to call people through the Internet. Exactly. Um, up from your phone. But um, yeah, I think I don't know. It's weird. I feel like we I used to be really good at replying to people's messages and now I've become because of wanting to take care and replying. I, I'm actually worse at replying. So. Yeah. But then there's sometimes where I don't respond. I mean, this is particularly bad, but there was a friend who lives in the US and I didn't respond for like four months or something. And I was like, yeah, because I'm going to write a really long response. And then when I opened it, it was a message being like, oh, I'm actually coming to the UK in, you know, in July. So I'm trying to be a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um, and if there was one technological device that you could invent, what would it be? So I don't know if this is a technological device or if it's just magic, um, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I think all technological devices were magic at the start. That's really true. That is very true. Um, so, you know, on Google Street View, you can um, look at a view, like a house or something, and then you can go back through the years that they've had photos taken on Google Street View and you can see like what it used to look like. I want that to exist just like everywhere. So I want to stand in my bedroom in my house and be able to see what was there like in 1950 and what was there like in 1700. I just love the idea of knowing what was where you are before. And I think about it a lot, actually, when I'm especially somewhere like London, where the history is so much more obviously present. I just love to see just just a snapshot. Like I don't want to actually walk in that time. But um, yeah. No, I think that's brilliant. There's an amazing book by um, Richard Maguire called Here. Okay. And it's a kind of illustrated um, kind of graphic novel type book. But they have in one space, they have multiple squares that kind of show you what that space was at different times. You should definitely Ooh, check it out. I love it's that. Like the, it's a kind of illustration of what you just described. <laughs> amazing. So it but, exists yeah, as a book. <laughs> but I would definitely use that technological device <laughs> if it existed. So I hope it does for anyone who's listening who wants to create it. Yes, please. <laughs> Um, and so which part of London do you live in now? So I've just moved to Walthamstow in northeast London. Oh, nice. And is there one hidden building or space that you would recommend visiting in the area? Have you had a chance to explore it yet? Not really. I moved like two weeks ago. So I think not in Walthamstow. And I don't even know if this counts as it's not really hidden. Like everyone knows it, knows it exists. But Regent's Canal, um, me and my partner walked the length of it during lockdown and even though it's such an obvious thing that moves through the city, walking along the whole length of it, I really felt like I got to see London from a different vantage point because it's so much lower than you are when you walk along the pavement or along the roads and you feel like you're kind of hidden away. Um, and because you can't see anything beyond the canal and the kind of walls around you or sometimes you pop out a park or something, um, it just feels like you're following this different path this different kind of flow of life or something and it made me think about all the 
all the rivers and streams that used to be flowing through London other than the Thames. Because the Thames, obviously, it does really announce its presence. And it, like you see it all the time and you're always walking along it. But, well, I am because I used to work at the South Bank Centre and I work at Tate now. Maybe other people aren't constantly seeing the Thames. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, it made me think of those kind of natural streams that have now, they're now underwater and you can't see them and they're hidden. And although Regent's Canal is man-made, I think it was made in the early 20, um, early 19th century, um, I think maybe that gives a sense of what it's like to follow those waterways. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm always fascinated by that, like especially those maps that show you where all these rivers used to be and some still exist below ground, but you yeah. just can't access them and others have been completely, like dis they've disappeared. But um, I think it's there's so many different qualities to the space around Regent's Canal as you move through it and as it cuts through different neighbourhoods. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I, I don't think I've ever walked through the full length, so that's... That sounds like a fun thing to do. Yeah, take your lunch or have <laughs> lunch in Camden or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. Um, and what's your favourite building currently in existence? A very difficult question. Um, but I've gone with something personal for this. So um, my grandparents' house, Midlands Farm, uh, which is, it's kind of near Manchester. Um, because it's the house that my... My grandfather grew up in, so he was born in 1916, and he bought it just before he died because um, he was re they were renting it the whole time. And it's this place which always felt very magical to me as a child because it's so different than where I grew up, which was very, I'd say very urban. I mean, it was Bedford, but, you know, it was <laughs> suburban um, to be somewhere very rural and on a farm where people are always kind of popping in and out. And it also felt like it kind of had its own vocabulary because... It was a lot bigger than the house I grew up in and it had like a pantry. I was like, oh, what's, you know, that's the first time I heard that word. But it also had words which I've never heard since. Like there's a bench that you could sit on. It's called the settle. And then there was um, a thing called the shoring, which was like a kind of indoor outdoor space where there was like a fridge and dog food and also a shower. And I still don't know if that was just a word that was just invented <laughs> for that specific weird like indoor outdoor space Um I think there was a shower because people were like muddy coming off the farm. Um, but yeah, it always just kind of felt like it it didn't exist for anyone else. And no one else I knew had that, even though I didn't really have it. It was just my grandparents. But yeah, it always felt like a very magical space. Yeah, it's had dots. And I can imagine like getting a chance to go to some place that feels so completely different to where you are usually must have been really exciting. Yeah, definitely. Um and I guess like this links to that question previously, but if you could visit one piece of architecture that no longer exists, what would it be? Um, so for this one, I was thinking about um, museums because obviously I work in museums and it's something I'm really interested in and the kind of artifacts and the way we see them in museums. And to start with, I was thinking about, is there like a museum that doesn't exist? But then actually I thought it would be way more interesting to see some of the things that are currently in museums back where they originally from. So for example, for this question, I thought maybe I'd say the Oba's Palace in Benin um, as kind of a prominent example of um, something that was destroyed in a punitive raid by the British um, in 1897 um, and where all of these amazing artworks and artifacts were pillaged from. And now you can see them in, you know, very famously in museums um, all over the West, especially in the British Museum. And they're in these very sanitized environments. And I think it would be amazing to be able to see see them in their original context. 
Yeah, and also to bring them all back together, like yeah. out of all of those individual collections and actually put them back in the context that they were kind of created for. Yeah, and I think when you see them at the British Museum, for example, as I said, it's very sanitized and you can't really imagine what it would be like to see them if you had the kind of sounds and smells and other sensory experiences that you'd have in the original um, location, even though, of course, that would have changed over the last 130 years. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. Um, and if you could select one vehicle to travel around the world in, what would it be? A sleeper train. <laughs> 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 because, you know, you can lie down, which is definitely important comfort. It's quite sustainable. You get the views. There's a sense that you're definitely um, covering really large distances, but you can get off and get back on. So, yeah, I think that sounds really exciting. And also, I think in sleeper trains, your point of view changes because you're sometimes sitting by the window, sometimes lying by it. So you get to mm. different vantage points to look at the world going by. Um, and what building material do you think is ugly and maybe despise? <laughs> Very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, well, I think probably with any building material, it really depends how it's used. But there is this building that I just think is the most ugly building. It's on one of the main roads in Bedford and they've put this plastic cladding on that's kind of like tiles like orange like it's pretending to be roof tiles but it's on the side of the building and no that that is ugly and I don't know what they were thinking <laughs> yeah there's a lot of um like fake materials or like plasticized versions that were really popular a while ago and somehow still get used all the time and I'm just yeah I'm curious as to like how people still think that that's a great aesthetic decision <laughs> no it's terrible and also um, maybe at the time people knew and now there's this whole like backlog of materials that like they need to sell on for cheap that's probably <laughs> I think there are ways that people can use them with humor or with intention that can be as you say like it's all about how it's used but yeah that's a good I think very good example <laughs> and so uh, I guess moving to like maybe a day in the life of, okay. of Debbie um what would you say is your favorite restaurant in London so I am terrible at like choosing places to eat. I find it so stressful. But one place that I really enjoyed going to fairly recently was a Georgian restaurant called Samaya in Barnes. And uh, I went with a couple of friends who are very knowledgeable about Georgian cuisine and they've been to every Georgian restaurant in London and they're like, this is the best one. And it was so much fun because I love trying. I'd never tried Georgian food before. Um, the food we had was really garlicky, which I love. And we had Jordan wine. And um, yeah, it was like, it's a very small restaurant, um, very friendly service. And it was amazing. What is Georgian food like? So, I mean, I, I don't know about in, you know, overall, but the food that we had, it was kind of like a flatbread filled with cheese, with cheese on top. And then these um, almost kind of pâtés made with, um, different vegetables and walnuts and lots of garlic. A really lovely salad with um, like unrefined oil and it just was like really tasty. Um, and, like, and then a weird green drink. I can't remember anything about it now, but very sweet, very green, <laughs> like a fizzy drink kind of thing. Um, but I have a real sweet tooth, so that was... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all of that sounds delicious. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It was, gonna, I recommend. Going to have to try this out. And so what would you consider to be your perfect meal? Um, so kind of following on from what I just said, I think I just love trying new things. So I think my perfect meal would be 
to maybe be in like a country I haven't been to before and with some people who are from there and they are just introducing me to whatever like their favorite dishes are and maybe there's like a specific way you have to eat it that you don't know how to do and they have to teach you how to do it and yeah I just love that kind of thing yeah I think that sounds great yeah (laughs) (laughs) and what was the last cultural event that you attended so this is going to be a little bit of self-promotion so sorry for that but um I recently curated an exhibition of work by an artist called Jill Bradley that opened at Pi Artworks two days ago um it's called Within a Budding Grove and it was a really great project to work on because I'd worked with Jill previously at the Hayward Gallery um but she wanted to do something a bit different and show some works she'd never shown before so she'd taken these um photographic self-portraits in the late 80s and they're really interesting works because she clearly wants to be seen because she's taking these pictures but then she's turned away from the camera so in one of them you see her bare back and in another one it's kind of her shoulders to the camera and she's turned her face away um, and then she never ever showed the works publicly until until now and we had a lot of really interesting conversations about the resonance resonances between these works and then the works she's been making over the last decade or so which are a lot more minimalist a lot more abstract, but are still very connected to ideas about identity and um, especially queer identity. So it was a really exciting exhibition for me to work on. It was the first exhibition that I've ever curated solo, um, although we worked very closely with with Jill on it. And um, it was also a really exciting opportunity to do some creative writing. So um, it was an opportunity for me to kind of think about all the conversations I've had with Jill over the last two years and write something semi-fictional but based on Jill's on Jill's life and the connection between. Wow that sounds incredible and I think really amazing to make a connection between her more contemporary work and then some of this work that's never been seen before. Yeah exactly and I think with Jill especially um, she's well known for her kind of big outdoor installations um, but I think lots of people haven't seen the kind of continuation of her practice and it was really amazing to see in some ways how consistent her ideas and concerns have been even though they've been expressed in such different ways. Well I'll definitely have to go check that out Um, and if you could inhabit one film which would it be? Um, So I was like toying with going for something a little bit more highbrow for this but then I had to be honest and I love Netflix Christmas films. They are so, so silly. They're so predictable. And I mean, not forever. Like I wouldn't want to inhabit it forever, but let's say for two weeks, you know, you know exactly what everyone's going to do. You you know who that person is. You know that that person's going to fall in love with that person. The characters just eat great food and wear nice jumpers. And sometimes they even watch other Netflix Christmas films in the Netflix Christmas films. Oh my God, like it's like a meese on a beam or whatever. Yeah, like it exactly. Like the never ending kind of film, Christmas film within Christmas film within Christmas I know. Film. And it's great when you've seen them all. You're like, oh, I, I know this bit of the film they're watching. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's just something very comforting about it. And I'm a huge fan. I, I think that's a great answer. I mean, it's also really cozy. There's a great vibe. You know, mm-hmm. you're guaranteed to have a good time. And there's going to be an open fire. There's going to yeah. be snow. Unless you're in one of those ones where it's like, what's Christmas like in Hawaii, you know? <laughs> and even then, it's not going to be that bad. So. No, it's going to be gorgeous and lovely. <laughs> Great. That's an, I'm very impressed with this answer. And um, what would you say is your favorite television show? So continuing on the kind of lowbrow content, um, 
I, this is definitely not my favorite TV show, but it's just a, some, something I've enjoyed watching recently um, is Sort Your Life Out, um, which is present, like the presenter is Stacey Solomon. And she goes to someone's house who has way too much stuff, like overflowing with stuff. And essentially her and her team clear out everything and they take it all to a big warehouse and they lay out all of the the family's possessions but like ordered so like here's all your cleaning stuff here are all your clothes hangers and then the family has to get rid of let's say 50 percent of the stuff and they put it all back in their house and it's just so satisfying and having just moved house myself and I'm living amongst loads of boxes it's so stressful and I just love that kind of really calming content I love organization yeah it's just it's just great <laughs> I mean, I could really use that right now, <laughs> having not moved. So I've just accumulated loads of stuff. But um, I think in many ways, it's like a kind of domestic curatorial project. So it makes sense that it resonates oh, with you. I love that. I should, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're welcome to. Um, but, and then I guess, what was the first album that you bought? So I remember this one really clearly because I went to visit, um, so I have family who live in California and we went to visit them. I think in 2003 and we did like a road trip from Los Angeles where they lived to San Francisco and my um, uncle was like oh you can borrow some CDs to take in the car with you and I took this Shania Twain album I think I must have heard like you know a couple of the songs from it and I was like I'll take that and we listened to it so much on this journey I learned all the words to the songs and as soon as I got home I was like I need that so it's come on over Shania Twain, one of the best-selling albums of all time, <laughs> rightly so. And um, and like weirdly, the American version and the the UK version are actually different. Oh, yeah, I, know. I didn't know that. So the UK version, I, if there are any like really big Shania Twain fans, maybe they will say this is wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is true. The UK version doesn't like a lot of the songs on the US version are duets, and on the UK version, it's just Shania. So I mean, it's still good. Um, but yeah, love that album. Did you go to her recent concert at the O2? I didn't even know that was happening. And then I saw on Instagram that like some people I follow went and I was very upset that I hadn't been, hadn't known that it, you went. Uh, I No, I oh. also had the same experience. I didn't know it was happening. And then someone actually who I work with here went to it. And then I was watching all of her videos of like Shania singing all of these songs that I knew so well. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, I identify very strongly with that. <laughs> So following on from that, which musician do you secretly love but are embarrassed to admit it? Well, I don't think I'm embarrassed to admit anything about like what I like. But um, yeah, I, I really love cheese. Um, so maybe like something like S Club 7 or something. I do actually just listen to that sometimes. Not like the whole album, but just some of the top hits. Yeah, I think it's really comforting to listen to. I have like all of these playlists on my computer, especially when I have to do something like that needs me to power through like write something I've been putting off or deal with something, I have to listen to this like power ballads playlist. So Amazing. Yeah. I put on bring it all back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing like a good power ballad to get you mm -hmm. like motivated to do work. And what would you say is your favorite album? Um, so I think I'm going to say Tracy Chapman by Tracy Chapman, because that's just something that we listened to so much when I was growing up on cassette in the car. And, um, I think it was an album that I really loved at the time. And then when I got older, obviously, like I understood more behind the lyrics and then kind of found a new love for it. Yeah, I love that idea of like, I guess, re-experiencing a song that you're so familiar with, but actually like understanding maybe what more about what it's about. Yeah. And then being like, wow, this is how did I 
what was I thinking before when I was listening to it? You know, what was it about it before that I liked? And yeah. Yeah, that's really special. So the last exhibition you worked on at the Hayward Gallery um, before you left was Dear Earth, which brought together 15 artists to explore themes of hope, care, and an emotional and spiritual connection to our environment. And since we're both people who work a lot with exhibitions, I'm quite curious about this as well, that um, in terms of thinking about what are ways we can reduce the carbon footprint and maximize the impact of exhibitions um, through a more kind of sustainable practice. And also, I guess, wondering if museums are a good place for activism to occur. Yeah, I think um, in terms of reducing the impact through sustainable practice, I think that we have to acknowledge that exhibitions do, like, they're not necessarily the most sustainable things. I mean, we could say that to be sustainable, we have we wouldn't put on the exhibition, which I think is sometimes in some of the reviews, um, people like to say that, you know, the best thing to have done would have been not to have an exhibition at all. But I think that's really not the way to look at these things. And I think that exhibitions about the climate, rightly or wrongly, are way more scrutinised for how sustainable they are. Um, I think one thing that we could do to make exhibitions more sustainable is to um, plan things more in advance. I mean, I know that some organizations plan things way more in advance and there is obviously negatives to having really long timeframes to planning because it means you can't be as responsive. But um, from my experience, what I've noticed is things being last minute are always far worse for the environment. Um, there's also things we can think about, like maybe not every exhibition is going to be really sustainable, but maybe we, we can make inroads and in saying, okay, well, one exhibition a year is going to be involve no shipping and how do we do that and I think it's also about working with artists to be really clear about what are the what your sustainable practice is and that everyone is kind of signing up to the same agreement so artists and contractors and the the place that's hosting the exhibition because I think sometimes not everyone is on the same page about what needs to happen. I think all those things need to be kind of really clearly set out for everyone who's working on the exhibition from the beginning. Um, and then in terms of are museums good places for activism, I think that's really interesting because I think that museums, a lot of museums want to be places for activism and they want to kind of engage with those, those ideas and they want to engage with activists. But they are and I'm kind of talking about like larger organizations now I think they're held back because there's so much worry about what that means to be actively engaged in activism and I think that museums just need to be honest about what they can do what they want to do and if they're not going to be a place for activism that could be okay but then how are they engaging with a topic like sustainability about um, climate justice without being engaged in activism and how are they engaging with activists or supporting activists and do they need to do that I think those are just questions that museums need to ask themselves and just be honest about what they're actually able to do and if they're not able to do something to think about how they're positioning themselves um, within that that debate because there is there's so much excellent work happening outside of big organizations that I think organizations can support that activism or they can do something different but maybe organizations maybe something somewhere like 
um, Tate or British Museum or these really, really big organisations, maybe they're not actually able to be activist. Yeah, but I guess um, there's still a lot they can do to provide a space for those activists that are operating outside of the museum to maybe become part of a particular show or to create a platform to share the work that other people are doing, which could then still allow them to maintain maybe more of a neutral position or a less politicized mm -hmm. position, but then, you know, give these other people a platform or these other organizations a platform to talk about what they're doing. But I guess it's about finding that balance. And I, and I think it also requires an organization to be quite brave because they're dealing with a lot of like complex stakeholders, funding sources, boards, yes, of course. other, other political forces. So, um, but I would hope that all museums do engage with it in some way. I mean, I don't think, I think at the moment with so much at stake, it feels like everybody has to. Yeah. And I think that it needs to be embedded in, obviously, this is a really obvious thing to say, but it needs to be embedded in everything and not just when we have these shows that are specifically about that issue, but it needs to be way more widespread than that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it definitely has to be part of a larger strategy, mm -hmm. ideally, but yeah, so hopefully it's going to give all of us lots to think about. Yes, definitely. It's not a simple solution. <laughs> yeah. And if there was one ill of the world that you could vanish, what would it be? Um, I'm going to say greed, um, because I do think that is the root to a lot of um, issues in the world. Um, I mean, I think we are, like, I think I'm quite a greedy person. And obviously my greed is on a, a small level compared to kind of a corporation's greed or someone who has a lot more power than I do. But I think greed is beyond kind of greed, like material greed and monetary greed and those kind of things. But it's also this idea of kind of taking up space. And I think if people were less greedy, they would also listen more and kind of give more space to other people to hear their ideas. And I think when you're being greedy, you're kind of just wanting to take up space and you're wanting to take over things and take over um take over the conversation and I think if you're able to let that go a little bit then you can actually hear what other people are saying and um yeah kind of I think it's seeking to know things rather than seeking to own things which is um what we should be doing that's very beautifully put thank so. you yeah, I was quite pleased with that <laughs> <laughs> so I really hope that happens <laughs> at least if the world could get less greedy yeah <laughs> and okay so now moving into our quick fire round um, the last few questions are, um, yeah, I'm just going to start by putting them to you. Um, what is your favorite color? I think yellow or yellowy orange. Egg yolk. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's quite ironic because I recently was trying to find this color and I kept calling it egg yolk yellow and everyone was getting really annoyed with me. And I was like, it's a really particular yellow. <laughs> Rich. Um, what's your favorite season? Um, autumn. Well, do you have a guilty pleasure? Yeah, I love to watch um, past auditions of X Factor, British Got Talent, American Got Talent, The Voice on YouTube, but specifically only the good ones. Like, I just like the good ones. I don't like the embarrassingly bad ones. I just want to hear a good ballad. I think that's excellent. Um, what is your most prized possession? Um, I don't have one, but I love everything that I own that used to belong to someone else that I love. That's lovely. What was your first experience of the AA? So my first experience was actually when I met you at in the Black Fantastic, the exhibition at the Hayward, and I was giving a tour. And then I was invited to come and give a talk here, which was amazing. 
um, that was incredible. And also we like had come to see the exhibition and we were really worried because there were tube delays that we weren't going to make it. And then not only did we make it, but it was open later and you were giving this incredible tour. And um, I'm so glad that we that all of that worked out because we got to meet you and then you gave this incredible talk here. So, Oh, thank you. And could you describe the AA in one word? Yeah, I'm going to say intriguing because I feel like I've got a lot left to discover. Well, um, since you can't discover anything else in the, the house you grew up in, we hope we can invite you back here many more times to discover all the secrets that we've got in our buildings. But thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Air AA podcasts are developed, recorded, mixed and edited by the Architectural Association from our home on Bedford Square in central London. To find more episodes, view the show notes and explore other Air AA series, visit air.aaschool.ac.uk.